Thanks for listening to the Dr. Drew Podcast on Podcast One. Oh, should we start this show? Yeah, I'm down. Just buying a car in Carvana first. Oh, for real? Yeah, it's super convenient. I already got pre-qualified in two minutes. All I had to do is answer a few questions. Ooh, that's helpful. And now just customizing my down and monthly payments. Ooh, that's a very fair deal. Yep. Boom. Just bought a car. And you get to take me to the Carvana vending machine in a couple days to pick it up. Ooh. I'm kind of busy. Visit Carvana.com to finance your next car. Financing subject to credit approval. Hey, I'm Autumn Calabrese, and I have a question for you. How do you do life? I might be a superstar trainer, but I'm also a boy mom, sister, daughter, friend, and entrepreneur. You might think my life is all working out and cooking healthy, delicious recipes, but trust me, there is so much more to it, and this is it. This is all of those real moments you talk about with your family and friends. Ever wonder what else life has to offer? Bring your curious appetite, and let's do life together. Subscribe now at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and PodcastOne.com. Hey everybody, Dr. Drew here, Dr. Drew Podcast. Thank you for joining us and continue to support the people who support the Corolla pirate ship here. We appreciate that. And check out all my stuff at drdrew.com. My guest is Ashley Winter. Her podcast is the Full Release Podcast. New episodes Thursday on iTunes, co-hosted with Mo Mandel, also Ashley's fiance. Twitter and Instagram, at Ashley G. Winter. Ashley is a urologist, and I love talking to her. Ashley, welcome. Thanks. It's great being here. It's a crazy and interesting time to talk to you. <laughs> I know. Have they suspended all voluntary or all of uh, you know, these surgeries for you? Yeah. I mean, this is just an absolutely unprecedented time, yeah. uh, of course, for everybody, but, you know, in in the active healthcare environment, it's just an absolute upheaval. So some things that are happening currently within the health system I work, um, all elective surgeries have been canceled. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, obviously urgent life-threatening things are being done. And then, you know, you kind of have this in-between area where it's much more complicated. So, you know, people who have cancers, but let's say, you know, what sort of delay associated with treating cancer, you know, X um, is going to significantly impact that patient's chance of survival, right? And some cancers are very slow moving and you could say, okay, let's wait till this all blows over. But then there are some types of cancers where it's, you know, not so clear. And then, you know, the other difficulty that we all have in the back of our minds is saying, you know, it's one thing to have this preparedness this week and the next week, but we specifically don't operate with a lot of, um, you know, extra time in our schedule. So once we resume normal activities, all those people who then suddenly need cancer surgery yesterday, uh, when do they get done? You know, and what's going to be the capacity? Yeah. This is the part that I, I keep saying, which is that the, the, the standing still for a minute is, we pretty much got that, but when we get things going again and how we get things going again, that's a tougher putt. I mean, it's going to be an absolute, I mean, I hope it's not going to be a disaster, but it is going to be a tremendous and formidable uh, process yeah. getting and, up to and, speed with that. And not uh, causing another outbreak. Yeah. Oh, mm-hmm. absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, and, 
you know, from that standpoint, there are things that we are trying to do to mitigate the loss in care that is occurring. And this is a big thing that I've been, you know, I, I find that, that it's, it's all consuming to watch the news cycle right now and be on Twitter. And one of the things that I, you know, did here today uh, from and, the White House press conference. And let me say, uh, this, this is March, very ex- March 17th is March 17th as we record this. Go ahead. The press, oh, yeah, sorry. The, the press conference was very... Well, you know, I, I would say the I was very happy to hear that they put out a statement saying that telehealth would be supported by Medicare. Yep. Um, and I, I mean, that is absolutely tremendous. And I think for the health system as a whole, that is I'm just extremely happy that the conversation wasn't just about masks and ventilators, but also yeah. how do we address care in a way that's also not compromising people's health and leave it, allowing them to be at home and supporting physicians. I, absolutely. And listen, I, and I've been saying this all along, that there will be evolution as a result of this, right? Things will evolve oh. in, a, in leaps and starts in response to this that hopefully we can keep in place after we're done. Well, you know, and, and I'll say, see, I currently work at Kaiser Permanente, which is a larger, you know, a large HMO system. And one of the aspects of working here that I found so satisfying was the opportunity to, let's say, do just phone calls and get compensated appropriately for that. Because, for example, somebody has a kidney stone. I've already seen their CAT scan. I know what their lab results are. Yeah. I know, you know, I know all the tests. So really, I have to call that person. I have to have a discussion with them about what their pain levels are and what they want to do. You know, should we do surgery? Should we wait? Should we give you medication? Let, let me 90% say, of that. Let me say, mm-hmm. as, as opposed to I spend two hours a day on the phone compensated for none of it. Right. None, zero. right. Yeah. Right. Right. And you talk about healthcare efficiencies, right? The tremendous discussion of our time yep. before this yep. from a healthcare standpoint was off, right? And so if I can have a conversation with a patient about their kidney stone without disrupting, let's say they're 45 and they're a business person, they don't have to leave work, right? Right. right. They can just get on the phone. So that's a that's an economic loss they're not having because we're having a telemedicine encounter. Mm-hmm. I don't have to bring them into the office. I don't have to have a medical assistant room them. Uh, you know, we don't have to take their vital signs if they're otherwise well. So all of these are costs that don't necessarily contribute to value. And it's so simple. I mean, it's one of the most simple things you can do is just compensate, you know, medical decision making and care conversations rather than, you know, being face to face. Yep. And, and I think this is, you yeah. know, a watershed occurrence for moving, you know, American healthcare in that direction I agree. when appropriate. And when um, they say telemedicine, they're not talking about Skyping and Zooming. They're talking about any uh, across-a-wire contact. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, there are different – I mean, we definitely have this, this um, you know, patient privacy secure video conferencing platform. But, you know, I have a lot of patients who are, let's say, 90 years old and they don't – Can't do it. They don't have a computer. No, so you call that person up. They just want to call on their phone line. Yep. Yep. And they want to talk to you and they don't care. <laughs> you know. So I think that's another part of this is I have seen a, a, you know, a preferential kind of discrimination over video conferencing versus telephone. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I think fundamentally, if, if the care is appropriate for a, for a phone conversation, then that should be you know, just as good. Now, you spend most of your day doing elective procedures. Are they redeploying you for other things? That, that's something I'm curious about people that are in very specified areas. Are you getting deployed or is, are you getting prepared to be deployed in certain ways that you don't normally practice? Yeah, so this is also a great point. Um, 
I did get an email from our, um, I think it was our hospital CMO last night saying, because I have, I have admitting privileges, right? So there are only certain physicians that are are able to take care of people who are technically hospitalized. So, you know, certain doctors, let's say an, you know, an eye doctor oftentimes don't have that capacity, but since I technically have admitting privileges, um, they did send an email to a wide swath of the staff who has admitting privileges at our hospital, essentially saying that we may be called upon uh, to perform some sort of, um, you know, alternate duties. And they phrased it in the form of hospitalist um, duties, which, you know, for people listening who aren't familiar, you know, that's basically um, internal medicine. So people coming in with whatever pneumonia or um, chest pain and, you know, stuff. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I will say I immediately, you know, went to a bunch of my friends and said, Oh my God, could somebody review EKGs with me? Because <laughs> I, not, like, I have not cared about that in over a decade. I finished med school in 2010. I have been, you know, 90 Nine percent below the belt since then. <laughs> That's hysterical. So, yeah, and so I, I heard I heard Kaiser was also sending stuff out to retired ER docs, and I I, I gave up my admitting privileges about eight, eight years ago, and uh, I'm saying bring me back, I'll go in. I but I I'm, I'm ready to go as soon as they need me. I'm I'm in. Um, yeah, and I and I, the the other thing I heard is that they're pulling residents. Have you heard that? To me, that's the worst idea in the world. Have you heard I that? Have, I, I had not heard that. I mean, like they, they, they were allowing them to. They're either I, they're either pulling them. I don't know their reasoning. Maybe they have the hospital actually has liability over residents because they're an employee, or they're they're giving the residents the options not to come in if they're fearful. And to me, it's like no, no, you step up as a physician. This is when you ha- this is what you took your oath for. This is when well, you step up. Well, I know, for example, that we, I haven't heard anything about residents within our institution. I have heard, for example, for like for surgical cases that do continue right now, emergent or, you know, semi-emergent, that they wanted residents to continue scrubbing in, but they did not want medical students to continue scrubbing I, I, in. I heard that too. And that was for the use. For the what? masks and whatnot. Now, I, I hope, I truly hope that they are still utilizing med students because med students are an absolutely tremendous resource. Yeah. And, you know, when you think about people who can, who know the hospital well, who can go between services because within the past year they've worked in surgery and internal medicine and gynecology yeah. Yeah. and who can, you know, run labs and help with procedures. And, you know, I, I just... This is a water watershed learning moment, and I hope that they are all, you know, encouraged to be a part of that. Yes, you know, agreed. Uh, of course, with a reminder that we're all safe. But yeah, um, I, I agree, but, and I and I would say that it's the hospital's responsibility to set the infection control standards that will keep them safe, and they just need to do those practices, right. and we will be fine. But to pull them, God, I mean, that is the wrong way to train physicians. But it doesn't surprise me, given the way things have been going recently. But all right, yeah. whatever, we'll see how this plays out. What other things do you yeah. think might come out of this that uh, could be positive for us all? We've got telemedicine. we got you sharpening your skills. <laughs> 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 yeah, I, I, th- it's really interesting. I think 
You know, one thing I was thinking about today, as also we're all on the internet um, and on Twitter and all looking at this, is is kind of really honing in physician um, sense of acuity over over medical disinformation. Mm. Um, and I'd say that is probably a big part of this. Mm-hmm. So I think physicians, you know, kind of, uh, you know, sifting through Twitter, asking people, where did you hear that information? What's the basis of this? Like fact checking, because right now we are, the, the amount of disinformation or misinformation or miscommunication is, is absolutely enormous. And the Stagling. fear um, and, and lives that could be lost because of that misinformation is tremendous. So That's right. I, I, you know, and I, I was actually thinking about this also because I was looking at a recent neurologist um, journal and they were, had been going through uh, YouTube videos about, for example, testosterone. And they were also going through YouTube videos about uh, premature ejaculation, neither of which have anything to do with coronavirus per se, <laughs> but those are things that I that I read about. And they had gone through and were looking at the percentage of, you know, videos on YouTube that had medically accurate information and also how well those did in, in the algorithms of social media. And, you know, which we would all assume that the medically appropriate or medically accurate videos were oftentimes not doing well in algorithms course, and uh, not getting many clicks and, you know, performing significantly worse than videos that had bad information, right? Yep. And it, it seems like such a simple idea, but I love that physicians are starting to be cognizant of this and, and publish on it and talk about it and engage in that. And perhaps this will be a catalyst for more people to engage you know, who, who have a medical background to engage in public conversations about health the way you have done for many years. But, but most people really have felt like it wasn't necessary. Oh yeah. my God. Oof. It is so necessary. I think you're coming to, you're coming to realize that now. I remember when we first met, you had you made the rounds to expert podcast and you were shocked at the, what the experts knew. And uh, I told you, you're yeah. the expert. There's no, so many of these, so many of these experts I mean, the training is just they're not none to to ridiculous. Uh, yeah. if, if somebody does not have a, a, a letters across their name that suggest high level clinical training, they should not be calling themselves an expert. Right, right, and and you know you think I, I mean I was thinking when I was a kid and you know uh, before internet and when the internet was new, you know if you had a question about something in health and it wasn't in your you know, the book you had been reading or, you know, something you found at the, at the physical public library, you probably asked your doctor, Yep. you know? Yep. And so there was so much more of, uh, you know, a way of funneling information through reliable sources, right? Like your public library isn't going to buy books full of garbage, um, you know, predicated on people trying to make money off of selling something. Right. And your doctor's not going to do the same thing either. Um, and so it wasn't a problem and, and the medical community developed this idea that you would convey information to patients when you saw them in the office and the rest of the time you were going to go to your conferences and talk amongst yourself. Right. Yep. And that was fine at that time. Um, but it's not, there was one other, there was one other thing you didn't have to live with that I had to spend many long hours working through is something called the index medicus. You ever hear of that? 
No. Okay. <laughs> it was this thing that was published every month that was a very complicated maze uh, of of medical literature. In other words, it was by topic and author. Right. And it was in every year the the publication this this. It was a reference manual, and the reference manual by the end of the year was about eight feet long, and it was oh sort of usually God. done by by time and alphabet, and you'd have to go through it and figure out, and then find the article, and then copy the article. It was just it was crazy long hours. So every call night was spent at least three hours a night in the Index Medicus, you know, trying to find stuff, and right. uh, that was cumbersome. That was crazy when we had to do that. And it's it's so weird I I, to me to think you just put, enter enter your question into your phone now and it comes up while you're standing at the bedside. No, it's incredible. I mean, I was thinking about how absurd it was. I remember when I was a kid, you know, you see on TV the ads for Encyclopedia Britannica. Yeah. And now you have probably, you know, 800,000 times more information yep. on Wikipedia. Yep. And it doesn't take up half your living room. And, yep. yep. Uh, and, and so much faster to fight. And, you know, with medicine, obviously it's just, you know, in a, in a real time sensitive way, uh, important to be able to do that. But, um, but, you know, kind of circling back to this whole thing about disinformation, you know, what I'd love to see is, you know, instead of when, when residents are applying or med students are applying for residency or residents are applying for, you know, positions or academic jobs that instead of just saying, oh, how many, you know, um, abstracts did you or, or, you know, research projects did you present to, to this conference, but kind of what did you do to shape, um, you know, health narratives? Mm. Like, Interesting. And, and I would love to see that become a relevant conversation, you know, and I'm not saying yes. you have to have a, a viral YouTube channel, but what does that mean? You know? Yes. So we should have a way of like, measuring that and assessing that. That's a really good idea. We don't now. Yeah, I, I, I think that is a you know a moment that we will either you know lose or 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 champion. And you know, I I see lots of kind of anti physician sentiment in the public space now, and that is a battle we shouldn't be losing. That's just crazy. Like our whole job is to help people out. You know. Yeah, the the people are very confused about what we do. Uh, and, yeah. and and don't really understand the different disciplines and how it works. And except when they have need, then they're happy to come. I, I'm wondering if the Corona outbreak will increase or decrease uh, faith. I don't know. It'll be interesting. Oh, I I really also hope this is bad. <laughs> I really also hope this coronavirus. I hope we get a good vaccine, and I hope it just eliminates the whole anti-vaxxer thing. Wouldn't that be nice? I don't think it like, will, but it'd be nice if it did. <laughs> so yes, I know. I know, and I would love to see if people who are against the vaccines are also against receiving the coronavirus vaccine. And, like, if they stand up and want it now, then thank God. <laughs> the the, the thinking know? is so um, rigid. They're still going to take aim at measles no matter how you, no matter how you, how you shape it. So whatever. At least they'll take the flu and the corona vaccines. Uh, uh, what, let's go back to some fun stuff. What are you, what are you covering now on your podcast? Uh, we, I'm, I feel ashamed to say this, but we've been doing it with less frequency now. We had been doing it every single week for probably a year and a half. And then with my, I don't know, I was planning our wedding. And then I'm also <laughs> you know, actively looking for jobs in Los Angeles. Oh, um, and good. yeah, yeah, because I'm moving, I'm moving down there. So it's just been a, it's just been absolutely crazy. 
Um, well, let's talk about yeah. your, let's talk about let's get our mind off all this other stuff. Talk about urology for a few minutes. Any new breaking ideas? Any things you're excited about? Topics that you're oh, concerned with? <laughs> I've been, you're, yeah, my mind has been so so consumed with with coronavirus. I know, that, me too. You know, I can't say um, there's been a lot that's revolutionary. I think you know when I was looking at recent. Um, uh, publications, you know, I have started to see people talking in the medical literature a little bit more about, you know, the relationship between cannabis and sexual activity, which I thought was interesting. In what sense? Um, in what you know, sense? Not, not, what, what, what direction? You mean pro or con? Yeah. So again, the data is not excellent because this is also new that we're getting in mass, you know, access to this and the kind of, um, permission on a legal level to, to study it because before, you know, that basically was just so restricted, you couldn't possibly do that. Um, but generally the basic principles are that in the, you know, it's very complex, obviously, um, in, in the acute sense and at a moderate dose, there can be a beneficial effect. Uh Uh, meaning like, you know, if you're, having some issues with libido and it's something you wanted to try and you wanted to try a small dose, you know, that there can potentially be a uh, improvement, you know, in your uh, arousal and orgasm intensity potentially. Now, you know, that's not consistent person to person. And obviously, you know, the preparations and formulations of cannabis and the amount of THC that people get is is so variable across all the reports. Um, but in general, uh, you know, high doses and long-term use, um, you know, is, is generally more um, negative for, for sexual life. Got it. So, uh, and, and I mean, I think we all kind of know that if you're like a stoner eating, <laughs> you know, whatever, like, uh, uh, you know, lots of, <laughs> I don't know, you know, whatever, you're, you're, not, you're not necessarily incentivized to be highly sexually active and there is some, you know, physiologic, um, you know, hard facts that we have that, you know, it can downregulate um, some of your hormonal response and lower your testosterone. So, you know, probably if you were interested in using it as a sexual enhancer, you're going to be looking at using it, you know, in, in moderate or low doses on specific occasions and, and probably try to avoid being like, you know, a high-dose habitual marijuana user. So. Let's swing back around. You said just we mentioned the topic of testosterone. So we've got now Joe Rogan saying that it's categorically clear that everyone over a certain age, male, should be on hormone replacement therapy. Where do you come in on this one? Oh, that is just crazy. <laughs> I, I mean, I, everybody who has uh, a low testosterone and has symptoms of low testosterone should receive a trial of testosterone replacement therapy if they want to. And if they receive a benefit, then they can continue that. Um, you know, that, that is the bottom line. I mean, you know, there, there are men who are of a certain age that have a normal testosterone yeah. and, you know, tell, telling that person that they have to, um, you know, beyond more is just like whatever. I mean, you know, and obviously there's certain components of 
uh, you know, testosterone do have more of a linear response, meaning like if you have higher baseline t- testosterone because you supplement, then you probably will have more, you know, lean muscle mass, for mm-hmm. example. And, and there's, you know, somewhat a linear correlation with that. Now, um, you know, other aspects of testosterone physiology do not have that linear response. So, for example, you know, erections. Uh, once you reach around the lower limit of the normal, giving you more testosterone will not have a, uh, cause more responsiveness in your penile tissue. That's just a fact. So, you know, if your testosterone level is 500, giving you testosterone to make your testosterone level 900 is going to have zero effect on your penis. But, like but, but it might own. affect, but it might affect libido and orgasmic function, right? Possibly. Yeah. Poss- I mean, possibly. Yeah. And, and one of the complexities here is that, um, we also know that in, it, it does vary person to person. So, you know, on a cellular basis, some people, uh, have a much more sensitive, um, intracellular, uh, androgen receptor, meaning that, you know, that person can live at a lower total testosterone blood test right. and have all the good stuff. And some other guy is going to be in a normal range and probably not seeing the manifestation of that. And unfortunately, we have absolutely zero way to measure somebody's androgen receptor sensitivity. Another way, way. another way of saying this, we don't know what the normal circulating testosterone should be for a given individual. Yes. Yeah. We don't have it. We, then that's why the normal range is so broad. Yeah. And I think another, you know, scary thing that I see I see insurances decline testosterone supplementation because somebody's testosterone level is above the lower limit of right. the normal range. They're yes. fine for that lab. Yes. And the problem is that the labs are often based on standard deviations yep. from the test coming in. Yep. Now, if the standard deviation of men are obese and have sleep apnea and diabetes, then that group as a cohort does not have a nat- physiologically normal testosterone. So, you know, that's, it, it, it's a bad number to go off of the, the, you know, means of that population to define what, what they, what should be covered and shouldn't be covered. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Yes. I'm, it's almost like we should be monitoring testosterone from youth to, and have a sort of a scattergram for every given individual, what the normal sort of, range would be, you know, you'd have to have it across a lifespan yeah. almost, and then you take two standard deviations off that or something. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. No, that is an interesting point. Like, what were your testosterone levels when you felt, you know, certain a certain way and yeah. had a certain BMI and a certain, uh, you know, like robust libido and, you know, what was that for you? Yep. And, you know, maybe that's the normal for you. That's, I mean, that's a very fascinating point and something definitely nobody's ever looked at. Yeah. Um, and I, I kind of feel like one day we will. There's going to be something like that. Um, I would love to take testosterone, but my prostate cancer prevents me, at least for the time being. But, no, 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 no. But are, I mean, do you have a detectable PSA? Point zero two. Okay. And what was your, I mean, if you don't mind me asking, do you remember what your like Gleason score or your six, 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 yeah. moderate volume, uh, good margins. Uh, it was, uh, in the, in the, it was midline tumor with a little more volume than you'd like, but it was all Gleason six, some five and, uh, that's it. And it's uh point zero okay. two now. 
I, I would tell you that based on your prostate cancer history alone, you are a reasonable candidate. Now, you know, I, for sure, for sure. Oh, and, man. you know, Don't a me. ton of urologists would tell you that when you, right now. When you move down here, we're going to talk. <laughs> you, can, you can be my patient. I will prescribe you testosterone. Oh. I am... I, <laughs> I, I want to see if I, I, I want to. I, I want to make sure I don't have any because I was zero point zero after my surgery, and then I was zero point two, and then zero point four, and then zero point two, and it's like, eh, or point zero two, yeah. Uh, and I'm just kind of like, oh, I want to see where the graph goes for a little while before I make a full decision on this one. Yeah, you know, but this is the thing. I so if you look at um, the association between also testosterone right, stimulation and prostate cancer. A lot of it also caps off around the lower limit of normal. So, meaning if your testosterone is, you know, 300, um, giving you more testosterone is not going to stimulate the prostate cancer. Um, I I more. I vary a lot, but I'm between like four and 600. But I know that's not my normal. I just know it. I can tell. So, I'm one of those guys. Mm-hmm. So, just yeah. Gotta, no, I mean I. Lift yeah. heavy weights. That's all. As <laughs> best I can sleep sleep enough. Lift heavy weights. That's all, right? Um, yeah. Let, let's let's again go back to the stuff that is interesting to you. Are, are there? I, you know, the, I, I'm just imagining that the transgender field is sort of something you get called upon to talk about once in a while or just comment on. What what kinds of stuff are you doing there? Are you interested in? So I I. I do get questions about it. Um, you know, originally before I took my first job out of training, I had actually almost very narrowly uh, turned down a job that would be full time. Um, gender you know, assignment. Gender assignment. Yeah, surgery yeah. yeah. uh, full time. Yeah. And I ultimately decided not to do that. Um, and it wasn't because I, I didn't have an interest in it, a very keen interest in it. It was just, you know, various um, aspects kind of about the job and the location. And, um, you know, I just decided not to do that, but, um, you know, I, the surgeries are, are absolutely wonderful to do. Um, and I'm, yeah, I'm not, I'm not currently doing them. I think they are something, you know, as a, as a community of urologists that, uh, we all have now realized we have to, uh, become knowledgeable about because those patients are, are oftentimes very young and oftentimes have lots of complications. And oftentimes the reconstructive surgeon who did their primary, let's say, phalloplasty uh, will not live within hundreds of miles of them. So we're all going to have to, you know, understand how to, how to take care of this, you know, those patients and, and do as best a job as possible doing that. So, you know, it's really just kind of bringing in a whole new class of of conditions, kind of en masse. I mean, obviously, you know, transgender people are not a, a, a tremendous percentage of the population, but, uh, you know, for the amount and intensity of care they require, you know, it, it's not an insignificant uh, proportion of urologic care. Um, and, and that those are, you know, things we're going to be seeing. And I you know, I haven't seen it yet on our on our boards, for example, but I'm sure, and I mean, I took my oral boards uh, last year, uh, but I'm sure it will soon become, you know... Uh, more routine. Yeah, yeah, a more what, routine what kinds part of, of it. What kinds of complications are you referring to? 
so for example, um, you know, with, with female to male, so you have phalloplasty, um, you know, essentially, and, and not everybody, right. This is of course for people who have that surgery done. There are plenty of, you know, individuals who are, you know, female to male trans- transgender who decide to not have bottom surgery, for example, or they have what's called a metoidoplasty, um, you know, which is, which is where you don't have a, a graft put in for a, for a, for a phallus or a new penis. Uh, but actually you take the clitoris, which has been in, enlarged from, you know, high doses of testosterone and you, um, you know, can do some, some reconstructive manipulation to, you know, generate more of a penis like appearance without actually, um, you know, transposing tissue. So that's metoidoplasty. Um, and then phalloplasty is basically where you take an actual free flap, uh, usually from right the the arm or the thigh, and you take that piece of tissue and you entirely disconnect it and then reconnect it, you know, in the area of where the clitoris is, and try to attach, you know, the, the vasculature, the nerves, um, you know, everything, and then you also tubularize it, so it kind of like you know roll it like you would a I don't know like a jelly like a jelly roll. And, and you put a urethra through the middle of it. So in those individuals, right, things that you could get are strictures of that. And you put, uh, and you do, could, you put, do you put uh, your fancy devices in there for erections? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 So this is all a very good point. So you, we do, and it's very interesting. So, for example, in Europe, when they do phalloplasty, there is a specific penile prosthesis designed for transgender persons that's you know, has like a bone anchor component for the pubic bone mm-hmm. um, and kind of like a one piece, right? The, the penile implant we have here is two cylinders because that's the way the, the native penis is designed. So you put one cylinder in each uh, half of your shaft, right? Yep. Um, because you have two natural uh, chambers that way. But when you have a, a neophallus, which is essentially composed of fatty tissue, let's say from your, from your thigh, uh, it doesn't have those separate compartments. So you mm. can't put those two cylinders in because they will like cross each other. They'll bend. It will, it, it just, there's no kind of thing really linking them. Mm-hmm. So oftentimes now they're just putting in one cylinder. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know, that's not adequate. Now the technology exists and the devices exist. It's just that the FDA hasn't, approved any of them yet and i, I don't know why mm. um but but you know that is a, a real kind of um, barrier to people having you know uh, you know the best type of erection in the in the neophallus and you um, mentioned you mentioned that you were attaching the nerves on the neophallus is there actually feeling yeah so and and i i the, recently there's definitely feeling um, and there are individuals who also say that they have, you know, satisfactory orgasm associated with stimulation of the, of the neophallus. And, you know, what they are doing is essentially connecting one of the nerves of the arm to the dorsal clitoral nerve. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the v- amount to which that, um, you know, will successfully attach, I think is varied. But I, I remember... One of my initial criticisms in the past few years, when they, when, when the rate of, uh, you know, gender affirming surgery went up exponentially, was that this was kind of a bandwagon that so many people were jumping on 
in the urologic community because they're they're interesting surgeries to do and they're fun surgeries to do, um, and it can it can greatly increase your operative volume if you if you start doing that. Um, but what did we understand from a functional standpoint about what we were doing? And um, and by the way, satisfaction of the patients. Did you have the right. track record to know that people were happy with this? Right, right. So so you know there was this moment where it suddenly became the thing to do and then everybody started doing it and i had a concern that there were people who who i saw in the broader community who had never been interested in um you know ge- gender nonconformity in 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 gender reassignment um you know as a from a community standpoint from an intellectual standpoint um and then when the opportunity to do the surgery came around, then they were suddenly the biggest advocate. And, you know, I understand that you can still have a positive outcome without necessarily the most pure of intent. Uh, but you do want to make sure that you, you care about the end goal that is the right end goal for the patient. Not right. like, oh, hi, I can do this surgery on you. Right. But do I understand what your gender means to you and how to do the best for you? that way and for example like you said like between the two options of doing a phalloplasty or a metoidoplasty or doing nothing right there are people who are transgender who are going to be the right match for each three of those um and you know that's like just really important but even more on a sophisticated level you know amongst people who do have that phalloplasty right the, the the big penis put on um, the big penis put on, yes. <laughs> really big. There was a great, no, no, there was a great study. Uh, I think it was some residents did. They measured the average circumference of the most popular uh, dildos on Amazon. And then they measured the average circumference of a phalloplasty, like a neophallus, made from a thigh. And that was so much, and I think even just also a neophallus from an arm, because that's usually thinner. And, and most of the penises that were being made by urologists and plastic surgeons was way girthier than like even like popular dildo sizes right. and probably way girthier than like an average man's penis by, by like a significant amount. Right. Yep. So, so, so we're probably getting ahead of ourselves and we're just like, Oh, we can make you the biggest penis you possibly could have. That's right. the best. Right. Like, well, you can't insert that. Maybe it's not the best. Right. Right. Like, right. <laughs> you know, um, and and did, let me let me talk about the male to female. Did you, you did you were you mostly doing female to male, or do you also get interested in the female to male? No, I mean, female ma- to male. male to female, male to female. Yeah, male to female. Yeah, yeah. No, no. And and that is something we also ha- certainly have exposure to. And those raise all these um, you know important questions for urologists. For example, uh, you know, male to female transgender persons, you know, are going to have to have prostate cancer screening and, um, you know, they're going to have to have their PSA checked and they're going to have a rectal exam. And, you know, you have certain people come in and you want to make sure to, to broach those topics with, without negating their gender, right? Like saying, okay, you have to come see me. You need a prostate exam. Um, you know, and, and being sensitive to kind of the complexities around that, whether or not that person, you know, is, let's say, in touch with that organ or not, you know, you know, um, so, 
so those are things that we're going to have to kind of continue to stay, you know, aware of. And, and I think also we'll be looking, you know, very intensely over time, how, you know, years of hormone manipulation will affect, um, you know, the presentation of types of cancers. Yeah. Interesting. And, and the female to male, uh, are you doing anything with the pelvic organs? Per se, no, female, no, female oh, to male. Uh, yeah, yeah. In other words, they need ovarian cancer screening, uterine cancer screening, that sort of thing as well. Yeah, so people who go ahead with a bottom surgery who are female to male oftentimes will have a hysterectomy done. Um, Olfrectomy too. You know, I. I can't recall offhand, and that's yeah. a great question. Yeah. Um, I mean, I would, if I were taking one, I'd get them both just to re- get the cancer risk out of there. It's not doing anything, right? Yeah, right. But 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 certainly the other main reason to do a hysterectomy is because at the time of um, the reconstruction, you remove most of the vagina, right? Um, and and you use some of that tissue for the for making the urethra one and two. You want to take it out because you can get, um, uh, you know, fistula, and mm, so interesting, you know, or, or or not necessarily removing all of it, but kind of obliterating some of the, uh, you know, mucosal lining there. But but certainly, you know, it's it's, you know, a hysterectomy would be a standard of care if you're going ahead with a you know a full uh, transition surgery. Um, and, and the reason we don't take the prostate—that's that, a first of all, it's a bigger operation, and it also can damage the nerves that you're going to be relying on to the penis. Oh yeah, I mean for a number of reasons. One, uh, if we took that out, um, and so think about right, radical prostatectomy and uh, incontinence. So, yeah. so you all those women would now be re- at immediate risk of stress incontinence. Yep. Um, and even more so, you know, you're removing all their penile urethra. So, so they would probably all be leaking. Um, and you know, then there's also, yeah, I mean, prostatectomy is a complicated surgery. I mean, you could get a rectal injury, right? I mean, so it's just not, you know, and then, and then on top of that, you know, there's, there's the argument that that is in and of itself a, you know, orgasmic organ. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there are people who may, you know, want to, to leave it in. Um, <laughs> to leave it know, around for, for, just in case. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. exactly. Does it, but, um, uh, it, and it will continue to produce fluid, right? Just seminal vesicles remain behind and stuff. And so it's something that, how's that work? Yeah. 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 I mean, the, um, you know, and these are things, again, since I, since I personally, you know, this is all like learnings I have from when I was kind of going in that direction of potentially taking one of those, jobs and, you know, seeing a bunch of those surgeries, um, and not necessarily, you know, an active component of my, my current practice, but, um, but yeah, I mean, you, you would still, still have a significant volume of, of prostate excretions. I, I would expect, um, obviously the testicles are removed. Um, but, but of course, you know, 90% of your ejaculate or more is, is not related to your testicles. So, uh, you know, I would expect that, that you would have that and, you know, probably just utilize, I don't know, you know, I mean, women, there are women who ejaculate, so. Yeah, yeah. You know. So it'll just be like, like <laughs> that. Interesting. I mean, people don't talk about that or think about that. Yeah, yeah. No, so this is, you know, I, I was very, when I, when I think before that there was some concern I had initially in that moment about, 
you know, we're, are we going to just take this on as, you know, kind of surgeons who, you know, just want to do surgery? Are we really going to start to understand this? And I remember at our, at our national conference last year, there were some really great uh, research studies who had followed people who had undergone bottom surgery and started looking at, um, you know, their sexual function and their satisfaction, not just, you know, and the initial presentations I was seeing, you know, three, four or five years ago were just, look how many I did, look how long it took me. This was my complication rate. This is how many effect infections occurred. Right. Right. And those aren't like ultimately the important things to the people receiving those surgeries. It's, you know, I mean, it's the same prostate cancer, right? You want to yeah. know that the cancer's gone. You want to have potency. You want to be dry. Yeah. Um, you know, you want to live longer. So with, for these people, it's not right. Like how long you were in the hospital. It's, it's you know, are they happy right. uh, and functional? What did the, the, the data look like? It was, it was surprising. It was, I recall it being surprisingly positive that mm-hmm. there were such a high number of people who were having... Um, you know, satisfactory uh, sexual activity and who are orgasmic, um, which is something, you know, I was somewhat incredulous that, um, you know, taking, you know, the clitoral nerves and attaching it to our nerves could, could, you know, produce um, kind of erotic feelings that, you know, apparently there are people who are very successful in achieving that. And I, this is just, it's all revolutionary kind of what, what the information this will give us about understanding, you know, just sex in general. <laughs> yeah, do me a favor. Um, if, you, if you come across that data, do me a favor and send me whatever the publications you come across. All right. Well, listen, Ashley, fascinating conversation, and thank you for um, covering a lot of territory today. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. And, and, oh, and, and as I said, understand you're the expert. You People should yeah. be coming to you for this information, not – uh, other people declaring their expertise uh, only only should come from you, and they're welcome. I hope you feel comfortable with people quoting you, which I think is fine. But uh, they shouldn't be marching off their own direction without checking in with a real expert, and you are that. We will look for you on Twitter and Instagram at, at Ashley A S H L E Y G Winter, and you and I will talk again soon. When you when are you likely to come down here? Uh, I mean, by the end of the year, full time. All right. Well, then you're yeah. gonna, we're going to pull you in here a bunch more. All right? Oh, I love it. Can't yeah. wait. Yeah. Okay. All right, Ashley. Thanks so All much. Right. All, right. All right. Yeah, thank you. See Bye. you next time. For calling times and topics, follow the show on Twitter at Dr. Drew Podcast. That's D-R-D-R-E-W Podcast. The music from today's episode can be found on the swinging sounds of the Dr. Drew Podcast, now available on iTunes. And while you're there, don't forget to rate the show. The Dr. Drew Podcast is a Corolla Digital production and is produced by Chris Loxamana and Gary Smith. For more information, go to drdrew.com. All conversation and information exchanged during the participation in the Dr. Drew Podcast is intended for educational and entertainment purposes. Only. Do not confuse this with treatment or medical advice or direction. Nothing on these podcasts supplement or supersede the relationship and direction of your medical caretakers. Although Dr. Drew is a licensed physician with specialty board certifications by the American Board of Internal Medicine and the American Board of Addiction Medicine, he is not functioning as a physician in this environment. The same applies to any professionals who may appear on the podcast or drdrew.com.